0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics voters elect new MPs in four federal ridings tonight. More on what to watch for and what's at stake for the parties with political scientist Lori Turnbull.
1: Being safe is a human right.
0: Making sports safe and ending abuse. The judge who sentenced a disgraced U.S. gymnastics doctor has a message for Canadians on culture change and the need for a national inquiry. I'll speak with Rosemary Aquilina. And with a political uproar over changes for LGBTQ students in New Brunswick, a minister dramatically resigns from the Higgs government. Dorothy Shepard explains her decision. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio. It's by-election day in four federal ridings. Voters are choosing new MPs in the Montreal riding of Notre-Dame-de-Grâce Westmount. There is also a by-election in Oxford in southwestern Ontario and in two Manitoba ridings, Portage-Lisgar and as well in neighbouring Winnipeg south centre. To talk more about those by-elections, let's bring in Laurie Turnbull, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of Dalhousie University's School of Public Administration. Laurie, good to have you here in studio. Thank you. Thanks so much so, for having me. Sure. So let's look at these four different votes because they're each providing a bit of a snapshot of where we are in Canadian politics in the moment. And we'll go to Portage-Lisgar first in Manitoba. People Party's leader Maxim Bernier is on the ballot. This is the riding where the PPC actually had its best result in 2021. But Conservatives did still win this riding by some 30%. So how important is it for the Conservatives to keep Mr. Burney out of Parliament or at the very least, keep him from building on that support?
2: Right. I mean, I think this is, this is a safe, conservative riding. Everybody kind of feels that way about it. But, st- but at the same time, this was a pretty solid result for the PPC in the last election. And so there's a sense that there's something to build on here. I think this is probably why um, Maxime Bernier put himself in this riding. Clearly, it's not his riding. He is not a Manitoba guy. But he's putting himself there to run in this by-election I think to bring some attention to the cause of the PPC and to be a thorn in Pierre Polyev's side and to try to build on what they got in the last election so that they can show that they're actually a force to be reckoned with. I think it's going to be a serious issue in the next general election whether or not the Conservatives have something to worry about on that right side. And so this is what this is about.
0: Whether or not the PPC uh, is is more than just an anti-COVID party, whether they're going to actually be able to get some more support beyond opposing lockdown measures and opposing other COVID measures, which is what we saw last time.
2: Exactly. Because, I mean, the Conservatives have, I think, historically had this issue around how are we going to organize ourselves? And there's, there, there's been kind of a breaking down and a coming together and a breaking down and a coming together, and they, and they came together under Stephen Harper to unite the right and beat the Liberals. But ever since then, there has been a sense of where is the party going, who is the right leader, what are we really doing? And so I think that's why the PPC, even though they don't have any seats, are a very relevant political force, because it shows that their uh, viability speaks to the fact that the right is not
0: quite united. Okay, let's turn to what has been another safe Conservative seat. That's Oxford, Ontario. Here, though, we've got some Conservative discord Over the process, over the nomination process, the former MP, Dave McKenzie, is actually supporting the Liberal candidate. We've seen one poll saying the Liberals and Conservatives are essentially deadlocked. So, what are you watching?
2: Okay, so this is a a really interesting race for a totally different set of reasons in the sense that. It looks like uh, Pierre Polyev's camp uh, kind of parachuted a candidate in there. The local riding doesn't love that, understandably, because one of the only things that a local riding association can do independently is put that candidate forward and shape who is going to represent the region in the country or who's going to represent the riding in the country. And so when you see the leader's office, um, you know, it looks like getting involved in that in a way that that doesn't allow the the riding association to fully express itself, there's a back and forth. It's kind of a power struggle. It's kind of a sense of where are we going? as a party? What is the point of the local representation? And so because this happened the way it happened, you see this, this again, like a kind of a breakdown in the conservative coalition in the riding, where some people are saying, well, look, I, you know, we, we vote conservative, but we're not going to this time. Is that going to be enough to actually change the result in the riding? My guess is probably not, because if you've got a base, the base is going to come out. Are people who are disenchanted with the choice of the conservative candidate for for these kinds of reasons, are they going to actually come out and mobilize for the liberal? That's different. So we'll see what happens at the end of the day. But it's the interesting thing, too, about by-election is that you know that when you're voting— This is not really a vote for the government. This is not a vote for Parliament. This is not changing the results of everything on Parliament Hill. This is actually a kind of one-off interesting moment where you can vote something and it doesn't actually change the whole world. And so people can get kind of Yeah
0: and that is an argument in fact going back to Manitoba that Maxime Bernier has made for Portage Lisgar. I do want to though go to Montreal. We've got the race in NDG Westmount where former Liberal Party President Anna Ganey is on the ballot but we also have the Green Party's deputy leader Jonathan Pedneau. Now this was Mark Garneau's rioting and he won 54 percent for the Liberals in the last election. Do you expect to see anything different here?
2: Not really, to be honest. I mean, Anna Gainey is, again, as you said, has been president of the party. She's very close to the prime minister. Um, I think the one interesting thing that could come out of this is could she find herself in a cabinet position? Uh, the prime minister already has three cabinet ministers from Montreal plus himself. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's a little bit of a factor to consider. But at the same time, given her leadership role in the party, it would be hard to see her not moving into a leadership position once she was elected. But it, it'll be interesting to see what Pedno can do in terms of a vote and what he actually brings out. This will be a litmus test for the Green Party. Again, Not, I don't think a riding they expect to win, but if they have a, if they have a poor showing, like what does that say about the future of the party?
0: Okay, well, we're, we're racing back and forth across the country. We'll finish our by-election tour. We'll go back to Manitoba. Uh, to Winnipeg, where Ben Carr is hoping to succeed his late father, Jim, as the Liberal MP. But, you know, another interesting uh, thing that people have noticed here, we've, we've got nearly 50 candidates on the ballot, and it's the latest protest we've seen in some recent elections, where ballots are being stacked as a protest against the voting system itself.
2: Yeah, I think you could argue we saw that in a, in a recent uh, by-election in Ontario. We can see in the the mayor's race for Toronto, not really a protest vote, but but this this really flooded ballot. And what do you do as a voter when you're trying to get a sense of who is who is running? What do they stand for? What are my real choices? That's really hard. I mean, I think in this position, in in this case, it would be very unlikely that anything happens other than a car win. And I think. To bring the question around again, uh, probably likely, probably a possibility for a cabinet position for him in the event that he is successful. But there is a question to be raised about what is the, what like, what is the value of having so many choices that you're literally kind of unfolding a ballot? Like, you know, what what do you do by way of understanding the candidacy of each person?
0: All right. So we've talked about what some of the local issues are in each of these four ridings. Let's take a bit of a national picture as we close out our conversation. Uh, As we look at the leaders, uh, Justin Trudeau and and Pierre Polyev and the other parties, uh, what do you think the results tonight may say about where we are right now in Canadian politics and the state of support for the different parties?
2: Sure. I mean, I think the benefit cost for Pierre Polyev versus uh, Justin Trudeau is different. I think that overall uh, we can see that those two leaders are very polarizing. We can see that their their negatives are quite alarming and their positives are not as high as they want. We can see that neither of them is building those bridges to the point where they're really kind of engaging in a transformative dialogue that's shifting voters toward them. There is a sense of a kind of doubling down on a very polarized political situation right now. What we can see tonight, I think, is the expectation is that the Liberals will hold what they have. The fact that Anna Ghani will likely win and Carr will likely win is not going to be seen as the prime minister knocking it out of the park. That's what people expect to happen. For Polyev, I think the math is quite different. There's there's more of a risk for him in the sense that even if Bernier doesn't win, if he does well, that's going to be something that Polyev has to worry about. If uh, the Liberal candidate in Oxford does well, and the, vote, and the margins, even if the conservatives win, if they're small, there's a sense, I think, for Polyev that he's got something left to prove. And whether um, moving toward the right in a way to collapse the PPC vote then costs them in terms of the, moving to the other side and trying to appeal to more centrist voters who are looking for somewhere to park their vote in a climate of total voter fatigue with the government, is Polyev able to capitalize on that? And if he's not, well, then what does that say about the future of the party?
0: Okay, well... We'll read the tea leaves as the votes come in. Uh, Lori Turnbull of Dalhousie University, thanks so much for your by-election insight. Thank you, too.
1: With zero tolerance of abuse of any kind, safety must be a priority, not an afterthought, not a cover-up, not a backseat to money and medals. So before any meaningful action can be taken, you must, I implore you, I beg you, have this independent judicial investigation, because without it, you will not reignite the trust that you have lost.
0: That's Michigan Judge Rosemary Aquilina calling for an independent Canadian inquiry into abuse and harassment in sport. Five years ago, Aquilina sentenced former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser to up to 175 years for sexual abuse. Today, the judge told MPs on the Heritage Committee that Canada can be a model for the world in protecting athletes and children. And Judge Rosemary Aquilina is with me now in studio. Judge Aquilina, good to see you. Nice to see you. Now, I want to start with uh, your committee appearance today. What was your key message that you wanted to tell Canadian politicians?
1: that the time is now actually past due for a national independent judicial inquiry for safety of athletes in sports. And we can't continue to traumatize children. We need to have safety in every level of sports now.
0: Okay. Uh, now the Minister of Sport has talked about uh, some kind of potential national inquiry coming. Tell me why it needs to be independent and why it needs to be judge-led.
1: Well, first let me tell you, it can't be potential. It has to occur, and it has to be independent because if sport has their hand in it as it stands currently, there will not be trust. And we need a system of trust and a reboot that instills trust so that if someone's being abused or has a problem, they can speak out freely. Otherwise, we are continuing the system of fear.
0: Now, I know you were at the committee that is looking into allegations involving Hockey Canada, gymnastics, a number of sports. Uh, As you look from outside Canada's border at the situation here in Canada with how abuse claims have been handled by Canadian sport organizations, what stands out for you?
1: It's the same in our country. It's the same across the world. Victims are not being believed. They're not being timely heard. And this is a matter of human rights. Child abuse should never be tolerated, especially not in sports. We prosecute child abuse. Why is it allowable in sports? It has to stop now. It hasn't stopped here. It hasn't stopped in America. It hasn't stopped across the world. We must end child abuse.
0: Okay. Now, I know um, part of your reason for appearing was because of your... uh Notoriety with the Nasser case. This is a case where you discovered um, it was not just limited to him, but it extended far and wide. What was the level of culpability that you found there?
1: It was very deep. If one person would have believed just one of those girls who reported 30 years ago, that case never would have been mine. It never should have been mine. There should have been adults who were responsible, who not only learned, but reported, took action, and changed the system, and prosecuted way back then. Because it was allowed, over 500 girls were assaulted, and some boys now. And that's what we're finding all over in sports.
0: So what does that tell us then about the power of retaliation that perpetrators hold over their victims? And what would an inquiry need to look at to really tackle that problem?
1: It needs to look at the reasons that there's fear, and there are many of them, because athletes, they want their playing time, they Mm -hmm. want their practice time, and they want all those things that they are entitled to receive, and there's retaliation. So if they tell, they don't get any of those things. If we take the money out of it, and we stop the fear, and we look at the problems, and we look at education and punishment of those who are abusing and taking out coaches until there's either clearance or punishment. Then we're looking at safety. We have to have safety over money and medals. And then we will have champions on the field and in life.
0: And you have, I know you've worked with, in the United States, you've worked with the US Olympic Committee, you've worked with members of Congress uh, to make changes in your country. Uh, What have the challenges been in moving forward? And what are the successes that you've seen?
1: There have been a few successes. We are able to change the statute of limitations either to get rid of it or to extend it. We've added on certain boards uh, 50% the athletes to have a voice but we have not gone far enough there's a lot of work to do both in America and across the world and I'm hoping that Canada can be the leader it needs to be and that we can all catch up to Canada right now everybody is at a standstill as far as I'm concerned because every single day there's no action there are children being abused we cannot wait
0: Now, aside from the issue of an inquiry, the Minister of Sport has uh, announced last month some other measures for the government uh, towards making sport organizations more uh, accountable. So, for instance, a public registry, restrictions on non-disclosure agreements, uh, more financial transparency. And you just talked about boards of directors, uh, movement to change. Uh, the makeup of those boards of directors. What do you think about those kind of measures and, and, and is that going to be enough?
1: It's not enough, but it's a really good start. There has to be accountability. You also have to have the enablers and bystanders who are also taken to task or prosecuted or sued or taken out of the equation. But you can have all the policies you want. If they're not enforced, they don't count. So update, double check, triple check, and make sure they're enforced because a policy on the book that's not enforced doesn't
0: count. Because it's then ultimately a question of culture change, right? We've heard a lot of talk about, in this country, hockey culture and other kinds of sporting cultures where there's this wall in terms yes. of making change, right? And so to you, that, that has to be in in place with any kind of measures, right?
1: Right, it's not just a culture change, it's a whole mindset shift. We have to protect children, listen to them, take immediate action and follow through. Doesn't work if you don't follow through. And then we will have change and safety and we will have outstanding performance in our athletes, better than ever seen.
0: Okay, we're gonna have to leave our conversation there. Judge Rosemary Aquilina, I appreciate you making time for us here on Primetime Politics. Thank you. Well, let's follow up on a dramatic moment at the New Brunswick Legislature last week. Dorothy Shepard delivering a handwritten resignation letter to Premier Blaine Higgs. Shepard leaving Cabinet after voting to review changes to provincial policy for LGBTQ students. That's policy 713, which would now require parental consent for transgender and non-binary students under 16 to use their preferred name and pronouns. Other changes deal with universal washrooms and sports participation. And with me now is Dorothy Shepard, who is no longer Social Development Minister, but does remain the MLA for St. John Lancaster and is in St. John today. Ms. Shepard, good to see you. Thanks for your time.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: So let's go back to Thursday. You know, you took your nameplate off your desk and you delivered that two-line letter to the Premier on the floor of the Legislature. Have you spoken to Blaine Higgs since?
3: No, no he hasn 't uh, he hasn 't reached out, and nor have I
0: and so just go back to Thursday, then, what was his message to you when you told him that you were leaving cabinet?
3: Um, I handed him the the letter and uh, and said premier i 'm resigning from cabinet and he he responded back well it 's good to get it in early
0: okay, and since then, Premier Higgs, he has taken some questions from reporters, and he said. Uh, that tough conversations or um, losing out on an issue to a majority of caucus members shouldn't lead to someone resigning, that uh, it's unfortunate, uh, in his words, to see you walk away from your job in cabinet. What's your response to that?
3: Well, that's how he would frame it. Um, I don't agree that um, that we we had consensus. And, um, and And, of course, caucus and cabinet conversations are confidential, so I'll leave it at that. But um, I have never walked away from a difficult conversation, not ever. And um, I think, as uh, as minister in his government, I have um, i served in some portfolios. Uh, you know, as minister of health uh, during COVID, and uh, and minister of social development the first time um, when we we had um, you know uh, difficult negotiations with um, with our nursing home workers, and and I've never. I've never run away from a difficult conversation, nor have I run away from a difficult conversation with him.
0: Now, I know you said last week that this decision was not just about policy 713. So what more went into your decision to give him that letter?
3: Well, it's been a difficult few months and, and in fact, a difficult you know year and a half Um and, and since sharing the letter from October 21, I think people understand that I've tried very hard to, um, to make this a very workable uh, relationship. And, and in the last couple of months, I really have felt that barrier after barrier had been put up in front of me to accomplish any of my work that it really I felt needed to be done in the Department of Social Development, important work. And if I can't move that work forward, then someone else needs to be there who he will let them take it forward. And so that's why i I did what I did,
0: okay. you mentioned that letter you did you sent this handwritten letter to the premier in uh twenty twenty one uh accusing him basically of not trusting anyone of not wanting to engage with ministers of of destroying the team in your words so uh is it your view that this was the case with policy seven thirteen you know as
3: this evolved um and really, I didn't look at that letter again until actually I had mentioned it. Um, I didn't really intend on mentioning it, but when I was asked about why are you so specific about October 21, you know, I realized that letter was has been very much on my mind at, at many intervals uh, since then. And and as I reread the letter, I, I just seemed to see how how so many parts of it and components of it were surfacing now. It's... um. Anyway, it's, it's a powerful realization of, um, of understanding, you know, evolution of events.
0: Okay, now since bringing forward uh, these Policy 713 changes uh, on LGBTQ students, the Premier has hinted, as you know, that he's willing to call an election on this or to put his support uh, before the party for a vote on his leadership. Do you think he would win?
3: No, I have. Uh, there have been many issues where I felt the premier has um, has has managed it in very antagonistic ways, and and times when I thought, you know, surely to goodness, there's there's going to be a repercussion, um, and there never has been. So uh, I can only tell you that um, I I sincerely do not know what consequences are out there for for um, for the premier, if any, and um, I I would I would even hope that the leadership style would change to to be more of a team, to be more um, of of an understanding that ministers uh, and caucus have a very sincere role to play in the management of government. I've always been reminded that my power lied in caucus and at the cabinet table and in the legislature. And, you know, that really was very poignant for me this past week in understanding that The legislative chamber is a very powerful place. And that was why I made the determination to give him my resignation letter inside the chamber of the legislature.
0: Okay, now there are some other ministers who joined you in voting to review uh, Policy 713. Do you think more resignations are possible over the next few days or weeks?
3: I can't speak for my colleagues. I just know that I felt that the barriers in front of me were to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't be effective anymore in cabinet and as minister of social development. So I, you know, I think it's obvious from the vote that there are individuals who, um, you know, who have some concerns. I think that for the first time in a long time, um, there were we came together as a group. Not something easily done uh, in this government. We we are all fairly segregated, if I can call it that. Um, and And so that 's how strong of an issue this was, but at the same time it um, it it brought forward enough uh, you know courage for um, for some of us to come together to say it, this not only feels right we 're hurting people, and we have to stop it
0: okay, so let me uh, end with you on this question then on. Uh, Policy 713. Obviously, the debate has been very contentious in your province. That motion uh, did pass the legislature to review uh, those plan changes. Do you think Mr. Higgs or his government will change course now?
3: I have no indication that that's going to happen. So that's why, you know, part of this was really about my own reputation and how far was I going to allow. Um, conversations like this to go on without taking a stand. And so I truly felt that this was the strongest stand I could take. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the support that I've received.
0: Okay, we'll have to leave our conversation there. Dorothy Shepherd joining us from St. John, New Brunswick. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: And finally tonight, we now have the design for a national monument to Canada's mission in Afghanistan, and veterans played a large role in the selection. The winning concept is from visual artist Adrian Stimson, a veteran and member of Siksika First Nation. Our design journey has been an amazing one, to sit with the names of the fallen daily, to imagine a sacred space, to reflect, to educate, to remember, to understand, to heal ourselves and our collective being underscores the death of this journey. We have sought guidance from indigenous elders, made connections with both past and present military personnel and families, Afghanistan organizations, scholars, writers, indigenous traditional territorial leaders, artists, and the spiritual realm to vision this most important space. The monument will go up near the Canadian War Museum, about one kilometre west of Parliament Hill. The previous Conservative government first promised the monument in 2014, as Canada's 13-year mission to Afghanistan came to an end. 158 military personnel were among the Canadians who died. Thousands more were injured.
1: To all of you who served, and to all the families who stood by you, this moment is yours. It will be a place to capture your memories, a place of reflection, and a place to gather to remember those who never returned.
0: And that is Primetime Politics for Monday. I'm Andrew Thompson in Ottawa. For all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching.